Welcome to the Deconstructing Data Podcast. I am Jesse Lezak, Fractional CMO at BDEX, along with BDEX's founder and CEO, David Finkelstein. What's new, David? Hey, Jesse. Uh, been a busy week. Uh, team's been working on a new product launch, so uh, all, all hands busy on that. But uh, I'm excited to get uh, into this new uh, podcast with our new guest. Said new product launch. That sounds exciting. It's coming. It's it's coming. coming. So stay tuned, audience. <laughs> um, and just FYI, we were having an air on LinkedIn. So during the introduction, I pulled down the event and I had to repost it, but it looks like we are up on LinkedIn right now. Nice. Um, so sorry for anyone who was seeing that air. Um, but we have a very special guest with us today, and it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Um, and so I'm excited to welcome on Jonathan Chin, co-founder of Factius, and let me invite him in here. Welcome, Jonathan. Hey, Jesse, David. Great to be here. Great to have you on the show, Jonathan. I appreciate you joining us today. And uh, let's do this. Let's uh, let you kick it off with uh, give our listeners a little bit, bit of background about you, um, your history and, and what led you to Factius and uh, what Factius is doing today for its customers. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Jonathan Chin. Uh, as the title says, the co-founder of Factius here. And uh, I actually, so I started my career not in data and not in tech, uh, believe it or not. I was a, yeah, started my career right out of college at a CPA tax firm. Um, on my way to doing taxes for many, many people and companies, um, but quickly uh, decided that I did not want to be an accountant and had always uh, had a love for technology. And that was just one of the passions I've had ever since I was a young kid. Um, so I that led me to kind of take some chances. And uh, I through a network of people that I've met, um, I was able to collaborate and meet my co-founders here at Factius. God, this is more than 10 years ago. Um, we're kind of an older startup is what we like to say, um, but have always been kind of in the ecosystem of data. Um, and so we started the company and have always been around transaction and consumer behavior data. We thought that understanding where people spend money was a key uh, information point and uh, valuable insight for many companies including marketing spaces, to retailers, to even investors. Um, so we started the company more than 10 years ago. Uh, I currently run the data and growth strategy. So that puts me kind of in the square of uh, basically business strategy and marketing. Um, I've worn many hats, though, in the last 10 years. I've done product. I've done uh, development. So I have kind of a, we were only four people, so you kind of had to do a lot of stuff when we started. Um, but that's kind of my general background. So from accountant to tech entrepreneur and forward. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's a great transition. Obviously, you know, going from an accountant, you know, you, uh, you know, it, it's sort of a, another data business is the way I think of it. <laughs> That's yeah, a very, I mean, very right? nice way to put it. I yeah, yeah. I mean, to be an accountant, you have to be very analytical, you have to understand numbers and, and data. And so it, it kind of can't, it's, it's kind of an interesting transition that you made i, I think um, you're right the instincts of numbers within the accounting profession i think are extremely uh can extremely can translate really well into data um you're totally sure. right you're totally yeah. right. 
Yeah, for sure. So that's a great, you know, it's a great founder story. I love it. Uh, always like a, a good founder story. And, and just like you, uh, I'm a fellow 10 year, um, you know, 10 year uh, founder of a startup. So uh, we're still, we still consider ourselves a startup 10 years in. Um, but, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the way things go. I think uh, that means you still love and have fun. I feel like we're still startups because the people we have in our jobs are fun. I think you cross the threshold when it gets, it gets boring and tiring. Yep. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, and, and if it gets sort of uh, with lack of a better way to explain it to corporate, you know, mm -hmm. it, it becomes less fun. I've seen a lot of, you know, Definitely. startups um, that, uh, you know, sort of evolved a little too much and onto the corporate side and then people start mm -hmm. disappearing right and you get a little too big or, too big public yeah. or something like that and now there's too much mm -hmm. oversight and it's it's just bureaucracy not when bureaucracy creeps in yeah yeah the well, as soon as the, the of innovation <laughs> yeah. as soon as the bureaucracy creeps in you 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 basically have graduated and you're no longer a startup, right? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, but For yeah, sure. we're yeah. All right, so we've got two ten year old startups here. That's great to meet yeah. another fellow. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about let's talk about the data. So this, let's jump into this. This is a a long question, but it, it's intriguing. What kind of metrics? Uh, and spending data can be used for competitive insights to better understand how competitors are doing. Mm -hmm. um, people always want to understand what their competitors are doing. And so I'd be really interested in hearing what you guys are doing to, to help companies understand that. Yeah. So why don't I start first with um, the kind of spending data that we look at at Factius and the kind of we have access to. So we, we have access to over 100 million debit and credit cards in the U.S. So we can see spending um, across uh, all of these cardholders in the U.S. for probably the last, call it eight years um, ish. Some are a little less, some are a little more. So an average of an eight-year history of spending. And so the type of interesting things you can see, if you can imagine what is on your bank statement and all the different transactions that come through, um, we essentially have an anonymized version of that that's privacy secure and compliant with all the regulations from a PII perspective. But the insight from a consumer behavior and spending is enormous. And like the topic and the question is, from a competitive perspective, we can see everything from when you shopped the customer journey where you shopped at one store, where did you go next? Where did you go prior? And on an aggregate of a hundred million customers, like what was the average store that somebody that shopped at Starbucks, where did they go after? Um, or same with Target or Walmart or um, another example we've seen and done some studies for is like Starbucks has an extreme paranoia of up and coming smaller uh, independent coffee chains. Um, because it's not gonna, they're not scared of another Starbucks emerging in the U.S. or in the world that's giant, but it's the death by a thousand paper cuts. Every single, once, once coffee and espresso has gotten really popular and now pour over coffees and different types of uh, ways to make coffee, the emergence of these smaller local regional favorites had come. And uh, we built some reporting on our data saying, hey, these Starbucks customers also buy coffee at all these other places. Is that trend growing? Is it diminishing? Or what's happening over time? Um, these are the type of competitive insights you can find in uh, spending data at a high level. That's yeah, interesting. So are, are most of your customers um, brands that do these types of studies? Or is it also like hedge funds that are looking at 
you know, what, uh, where consumer spending is going and things like that too. Yeah, I'd say so today, if I looked at 2023 and where we are today, the majority of our customers are actually from the investment space. So like you mentioned, hedge funds. Um, I know you're down in Florida and there's actually a lot new, a lot of hedge funds down there now um, where we have customers. But mm-hmm. the uh, so their ability to kind of understand what's happening um, with publicly traded companies and retailers. A lot of that comes from our kind of data, understanding trends and how uh, they're measuring year over year or competitively measuring against each other. So uh, that's that's definitely where most of our customers are today. Um, but we we have a lot of ambition to kind of go into the retailer market where brands are actually much we're much more interested in growing that business we think brands there's more utility and value to a brand like like i said starbucks for example Mm -hmm. i think the the market size is much bigger for brands to use this type of data and so that's a big growth area that we've seen this year we grew a lot and um are aspiring to next year in the next couple years to really go grow that market to be bigger than our investor market yeah, that's good. I agree. I think there's a lot of opportunity there with brands. And I know that we've had, you know, we've conversations with brands all the time that are trying to understand what their competitors are doing, um, mm-hmm. you know, constantly. Um, and not only that, but also, you know, those types of trends that you mentioned, you know, are, are people coming into our store, but when they go into our store, you know, if they're not buying, are they going to some other store and buying mm-hmm. there? And, and that's, that's definitely totally. a concern with those, uh, those brands as well. Yeah. And one of the, I mean, we had this like little moment of time where we did have a lot of brands like during kind of lockdown and the pandemic period. Um, Mm -hmm. It was interesting. People were interested in seeing, I know my stores are doing bad. Is everyone else doing as bad? And that type of competitive intelligence was contextually important. And I think that's where, um, the kind of the maturity of it's called the big data industry and what we're calling kind of the data as a service industry where my company Factius lives, we're, we're, con- we're converging into this, I think this int- interesting value technology where um, everyone's got their first party data in these amazing cloud systems now where 10 years ago is hard to get. Now I'm sure your, your brand customers are like inundated with data they have access to. Um, but now companies like mine, it's like, actually that data is really valuable. It's even more valuable if you contextualize it with what else is happening in the world. Um, when I say the world, I mean the spending world. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Understand their behaviors. That's really powerful. I could see how a lot of marketers would want to understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else on this question before I transition us into the second one that you want to cover? No, not not too much. I like. I just think there's just a wealth of knowledge um, from a competitive perspective that uh, spending data can offer. Um, and yeah, I think a lot I'm, of your I'm intrigued. Is- I'm intrigued to ask a question. Sure. Um, yeah. Just because, especially well, because especially when we, you know, when I talk to somebody that has an interesting data set, I'm always curious because you know we do we do these things all the time where we we analyze data sometimes for specific clients. And sometimes it's just because we're curious, right? We take in these huge data sets and we do some analysis on it. We're like, wow, that's really interesting. Every time you look at a a different type of data set, um, depending on how you um, chart it, you can find like really interesting Mm -hmm. things. Um, I'm curious in, in your work to date in analyzing this type of data, are there any sort of like trends that you've seen that you've just looked at and gone, 
wow, that's really interesting. I never would have thought of that. So uh, there's definitely a few. Um, God, you put me on the spot. But I, <laughs> I, one that I think is really interesting that at least I'd say uh, it's not super common um, for most people to understand uh, just because they're not seeing the data that I get access to. So uh, one thing that's really interesting is, and this is intuitive, like different income levels will have different patterns. So that that's obvious, right? You guys would get that, I get that. Um, but what what's really interesting is, uh, so normally when we think about retail, the retail, the, re the hub of retail spending comes at the end of the year, that November, December timeframe, Black Friday, holiday season. Um, so essentially from January to December, the line just goes up um, from a spending perspective. Um, as you actually move down into the income brackets and you kind of get into the lower middle um, income, uh, the trend's actually totally different. Um, the spike in spending activity actually comes in the beginning of the year. And that's, it's, it's kind of like the February middle of March time. And the reason is actually that's because that's tax season. And going back to my accounting days, I didn't even mean to relate that back to it. But actually, that's when most mm -hmm. people get their tax refunds. So um, as you move lower kind of in the middle to lower incomes, uh, the spike in spending in on annual is actually in the beginning of the year when people get that infusion of cash from their uh, tax refunds. Hmm. That's yeah. See, that's a perfect example. And it's, it's one of those things where if you didn't, look at that data and to find that out but you're trying to target that market you might actually target exactly so if, and we see like if you think about like the dollar stores or dollar general dollar tree um or even sometimes like the tj maxx's the ross's the marshall's mm -hmm. those type of retailers um that type of trend's really important for them to understand um the reason That's i think that one david we won't tell anyone. We'll, we'll, we'll get them to buy that data from you. First. There you go. There you <laughs> go. Um, but yeah, the reason I chose that was because I still, to this day, every time we hire new, sorry, I looked out of my phone booth because uh, every time we hire new data scientists or data engineers, the what, some of their first reactions, they looked at it like, oh, if you look at it this way, I think the data is wrong. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, no, no, actually, you, it, and it's just no, people haven't seen it and if you're not experienced with that, then you just don't know. But I remember having many, many conversations like, no, actually the data is right. Let me explain to you why and show you. <laughs> That's great. That's a great example. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Super interesting. But let's get into now how market share data provides a view on which retailers are winning in the wallets of consumers. So even by geographies or within a specific spend category. Yeah, so wallet share is actually, it's a really interesting metric that uh, spending data can offer where, and I'll just explain it really briefly. So essentially, if I have, let's say David's um, anonymized credit card spending data, um, what we consider wallet share is, let's say on average, David spends like, let's say three $3,000 per month. Uh, essentially, what percentage does each brand get out of that $3,000 per month? And and since David's in Florida, I can categorize this in like the Florida region. And uh, I, you said you live in South Florida, so it, we can even go super regional and go down to the South Florida area. So WalletShare uh, provides kind of that interesting access where instead of looking at uh, gross dollar amounts, because based on so many different factors, um, people spending dollars might not be the most uh, interesting trend that's happening where 
uh, if someone's a high spender, but actually they're spending more at your competitor, even though they're above average, you still want to try to get more of that wallet share. So that's, like I said, the Starbucks and let's say the blue bottle coffee example, um, someone might be spending above average at Starbucks, which I think is like $6.47 for an average transaction. So David might be a $10 spender on average, but it might not matter contextually if he's spending $15 uh, every time he goes to Blue Bottle Coffee. And so that's where wallet share can be a really contextualizing uh, metric to help understand different types of behaviors at the kind of micro uh, customer level. Well, most of my spending is on Amazon, so you know, <laughs> <laughs> it it would be really difficult to tell like where I'm spending money besides Amazon and airplane tickets to to fly my daughter to and from school. So, <laughs> and hotels, I guess. Then yeah, so Amazon yeah. and hotels. Yeah, um, yeah, but <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, so so that's interesting. I mean, the the fact that you can you can sort of um, narrow it down that far down to by geography and, and, and such as well, um, really gives uh, further insight into to the brands, right? To understand, um, you know, where the spending is happening. And, yeah. And for the marketing audience, I think where you can think about how WalletShare can help, you can find more opportunities below just kind of averages, I guess is what I'm saying. So um, like, I, like I said, if, let's say like David, the example of David spending $3,000 a month. If you, we understand from a wallet perspective, he's got, he spends $200 a month in coffee, then whoever the marketing coffee execs know that that's the pie. And it almost doesn't matter average transaction size or frequency or anything. Just understanding that's the pie that you're trying to capture because averages might just, uh, might hide some of those different opportunities where yes, David might be considered a great customer because he's spending higher than average, but knowing that you're losing, you're, you're missing part of the pie and someone else is eating it is actually just as important because it's actually, he has potential to be even higher spender if you were able to uh, capture him. Very interesting. Definitely. Yes. There's a lot of thought that goes into buying that cup of coffee that people don't really <laughs> Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I guess more of a reason to just make it at home. And, and, but, um, yeah, or in David's case, probably at the airport. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, hey, we're a coffee drinking country. So what can you do except understand the data? And man, it is fascinating. So um, what would you add to that in terms of like, I guess you already did mention the geography piece of it. Um, and within a specific spend category, um, so I'm just breaking down the topic that we sort of discussed and made sure that we got every part of it. But um, so we said, even by geographies or within a specific spend category, how would you elaborate on that? Yeah, so I think like the category example, um, like maybe if not coffee, maybe like you could think of food delivery services or um, even gr or grocery or just kind of uh, apparel retail in general. So at the category level, um, you, understanding the breakdown of where people are spending their discretionary income. And that also can help inform from a trend perspective. I can see from a marketer, a lot of times marketers and brands are trying to understand what's happening again with their data. Why was spending up or down? And understanding why is just as important as it, trying to make it go up, I guess, up and to the right. And sometimes 
the category spend is an interesting one where if you're a clothing retailer and you saw a spike in sales, um, it's important to see at the category level, was there a spike? So are you just riding a wave that happened or did your company and brand do something distinct to stand out and create that spike? Um, and then I'm not trying to discredit anybody, but you know, it's good to contextualize. Like actually the entire apparel retailer went up in March, maybe because like I said, maybe tax refunds, that's the category and people decide to spend that money on clothing. Um, just knowing that at a category level from, uh, in breaking apart how how these trends are happening and working in general. But then the marketing team is like, no, it was us. <laughs> It was me. It was me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's interesting that you say that because one of the things I, I was just thinking about is like, what, you know, what trends have you seen just in the last year or two that might be really more related to the costs of everything going up? I mean, you know, everything's gotten more expensive, mm -hmm. right? With the inflation, mm -hmm. with the insane amount of inflation. And so I'm curious, yeah, how do you determine like where there has been more spending versus just prices going up? Like when we look at things over the past year. Yeah. So um, got the accounting and data hat on now again, but yeah. uh, the, I think it, it's so the, and you're totally right. Inflationary pressures create a lot of, um, a lot of kind of outliers in data or potential trends. So I think, one, when, whenever anybody's looking at data, um, it's, and I think, like you said, as an accountant, it's always best to triangulate into things instead of taking just one measure and thinking that's the one. So to mm -hmm. your point, if you're looking at just gross dollars moving up, um, you definitely have to account for inflation and things costing more money. So a couple of things we do or we help people do is one is if the number of dollars going up are the number of cardholders spending money in this category or brand staying constant going up or down, right? There's like that number of people, number of customers, Aside, mm -hmm. forget about dollars, just how many people. And then also the average spend per person, how that's trending too. Um, an example, just because you asked, um, I recently, or not me, I guess we as a company recently collaborated with uh, a guy on the Wall Street Journal that he just came out with this article called the uh, uh, Funflation. Um, the cost of having fun is going up. And the data we pulled was actually uh, essentially live events. It was ball games from, you know, the NFL, NBA, um, concert tickets, I think Taylor Swift, U2 mm -hmm. in Vegas, um, and even like amusement parks, think Disneyland, Universal Studios, all of those. So we gathered data on all those different places when people are spending money and we're trying to figure out okay is the cost of essentially what he said the cost of having fun going up and it most definitely is and so but if you looked at just the dollar spend year over year um the dollar spend from last year to this year on just activities was pretty close to flat so it didn't like go up too much but there was a 10 percent drop in the number of people spending money in those categories or in amusement parks or in um, concerts, which, in, you know, we're getting further away from COVID. So things are more open. People want to get out more, but actually less people in 2023 spent money and went to those places than in 2022, but the dollars stayed the same. So mm -hmm. to me, that tells you each person was spending more, yep. which really made sense. If you think about how much the concert tickets cost and how much, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, like I grew up in the Bay area, 
longtime 49er fan. Hopefully that doesn't offend anyone on here. <laughs> but I remember going to ball games with my dad. And if I look at how much a two tickets, father and son going to an NFL game today, it's crazy. It's like yeah. absolute crazy. Um, and so, yeah, that's one way you can kind of look at those different metrics and triangulate to what's happening. Mm. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's really interesting. And I think that uh, you could really like d dig deep into a lot of interesting things. But the fact that what you just explained, it basically means that people are, are having less fun because, <laughs> right? I mean, the reality is, is inflation goes up, you know, people have less fun, right? Because yeah, or they, or they choose to have fun in a different way, I guess. Maybe that's, yeah. Maybe that's what know. it is. Um, Maybe they're yeah. choosing to attend more live stream events instead of <laughs> person events. <laughs> yeah. I can suggest some good ones. Just let me know. Um, having more fun at home by watching the game at home and just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that'd be. I, you mean that you know it'd be interesting seeing. I mean, you guys have some interesting TV data. If that yeah. trend, it's like, oh wow, more people watched games or streamed concerts or something in 23 than they did in 22 it's like oh exactly. that's where that 10 percent went they're sitting yeah. on the couch and, and i believe it's true actually because if you look at the, the spending people are, are are making in online you know you know streaming services everyone seems to have multiple streaming services we had you know uh, last time many. we had yeah last time we had someone from tivo on the podcast we were talking uh -huh. about uh, they had some statistics and I don't remember the numbers, but the average number of streaming services that people subscribe to. And it's crazy. The trend has, has gone up. And if you look at it just a few years ago, it was one like Netflix. That was it. And now it, I think it's something like, you know, six or seven, as many as six or seven that people are subscribed to. I think yeah. I'm north of six, but yeah. See, <laughs> <laughs> See that? Yeah. Wow. It's unbelievable. Definitely. Well, let's get into our third topic. I'll pull it up on the screen, but we're sort of wondering how the potential of consumer spending data from data as a service companies allied with AI tools can identify emerging market trends, inform marketing decisions, and guide the development of effective policies and sustainable business practices. Can you walk us through all of that, Jonathan? Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Well, at a high level, um, I think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of content and great literature on AI and generative AI that's happening today. Um, and I think all of it's extremely relevant in what it can do from a content creation perspective and an imagery perspective and just reacting and collaborating with a human on one side. I think, so I'm not, I, I don't necessarily want to talk about that because I feel like a lot of people do talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, but as a data as a professional in the data industry and also working with these new generative AI technologies, um, I at least want to share a perspective I see that we've seen in-house at our company, but also I think an interesting trend for, you know, any profession, to be honest, kind of in the sphere of technology and data, um, including marketing. And I think that uh, the, essentially these AIs are going to create this amazing skill augmentation that, I don't think has happened since probably like the computer itself, not even the internet, but literally the computer um, where data historically has been a pretty technical profession and getting to the level of a dashboard or an insight from actual data, like the stuff I talked about early on the podcast was just it, it, there's a lot of technology and technical people 
that need to be involved on that kind of stack or ladder in order to get that little cream of insight at the top. And I think the these AI technologies, these generative AIs are really going to shorten that cycle or window and offer that skill set to just anyone. Um, I said this earlier um, in speaking to some of my colleagues, I think like in the future, I think data can be read like English. Like you're not going to need a data scientist, a data engineer, or all this technology and stack to interpret these large systems of data. Um, these AIs are just really shortening that life cycle and that ecosystem to uh, do all the heavy lifting and then interact with someone in a natural language way, which is so valuable because there's a lot of great business thinkers. There's a lot of analytical people out there, but they might not know how to code. And then you need to compare them with people that can code and someone that can build a cloud system and maintain a database. And I think I'm not trying to say things are going away. What I'm, what I am saying is I think that from a trending perspective, everyone's ability to get knowledge and insight is going to go down or sorry, the, the barriers to get knowledge and insight are going to go down and everyone's going to have access to them. And so I think that competitiveness is going to just be more valuable from a marketing perspective, a business perspective, a tech perspective, even just managing a team or being a B2B company or a P2C company. I, I think that's just a huge market trend, I think, that's happening or going to happen. Um, I've seen, there's many examples I've seen I don't know if you guys have seen somewhere people have like built applications that have never coded before with the help of ChatGPT. They don't know how to code, but they know how to explain what they want. And I think similarly, we're going to soon see that same type of value getting extracted out of data. Yeah, that's a great point. I agree a hundred percent. I think we're really close to being able to take, you know, databases like yours and ours that are, you know, petabytes in size and, and literally be able to, you know, talk to, you know, an application that will say and be able to explain what you're trying to get out of it rather than having to actually truly understand the underlyings of, of how do you, how to code it mm -hmm. or, or how to manipulate the data or anything like that. You literally be able to just say, okay, this is what I want to do with the data or this is how I want to analyze right. it. Or I want to chart out this, <clears throat> uh, you know, these trends over this period of time and it'll do it for you, which to your point means a lot more people that um, that are very analytical, but just are not programmers will, will now be able to do things with this data that they never could do before. And so it's going to be uh, highly enabling. A hundred percent. I think the companies that will enable the kind of, I, I think the access to data at a more global level are going to benefit from kind of this army of people that are just now more equipped with intelligence and understanding and context and information than the companies that are not essentially. So, and I also think that provides an interesting opportunity similar to what technology usually does, right? It drives costs of hard things down like or difficult things. I'm just simplifying things, but mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, it, theoretically, I hope what we can see is just, there's going to be more brands that can compete with the big brands. This allows them more access, more information, quicker, faster. Like it used to, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a millennial, so I'm kind of old. I know to get a website up on the internet used to not be very easy. Um, mm -hmm. Servers 
were not you had to like have a server or lease a server all these things now anybody like literally i think my 11 year old nephew has a website um, <laughs> and he oh, yeah. built it himself and it's just so simple now and i think just the that the cost of all that knowledge and data analysis is going to go down so like hopefully uh we can just see more brands being able to compete with all the giant brands as well too and just kind of get a more even playing field yeah uh, 100% and i think that that's what's happening across the board you know with respect to data and ai like we, we like to say in some ways where we try to um de democratize data make it available mm -hmm. to anybody right um, we want SMBs to be able to compete with, with the big guys, um, because, you know, otherwise, you know, it's kind of a dim future if you just look at, you know, every company <laughs> being a gigantic company. <clears throat> um, and so I, I think that exactly totally is agree. what you're saying. Like, you know, we're, as a whole, as an industry, um, we're, you know, I think that there's a lot of democratizing AI that's going on today, making it easy for anyone to access and, and create things. Um, using AI, which I think is is you know good for the future of business, actually. Hundred oh, percent. We talk about democratizing data a lot, but I think that's the first time anyone's mentioned democratizing AI. But that sums it up pretty well. Yeah, that's totally something from a mission perspective. We at Factius we think about too democratizing data and really mm -hmm. getting it in the hands of as many people as possible. I mean, obviously selfishly that helps our company grow, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, it is kind of the, it's the tool that we think can help even the playing fields. And I totally agree, a grim future if only large companies exist. But mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I, I think there are ebbs and flows to just how they things concentrate in large and then everyone's like not satisfied because a large company tries to satisfy the average and mm -hmm. then everybody wants something customized and then we go back down to micros. No, that's a, yeah, that's a hundred percent true. That's a perfect example of, of how things tend to trend. Larger companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, like these companies had access to AI before anybody else because of money, you know, mm -hmm. they just had the resources to do it. Um, but as, uh, as technology advanced and it became more accessible, um, now it's accessible to anybody. And that's, that's, yeah. that's a yep. fantastic thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really great thing. Well, we only have 10 minutes left. And so I know we got a couple more questions we'd like to get to if we can. So real quick, we'd like to ask you something we ask every guest on Deconstructing Data. And that's about some of your favorite tools in your tech stack. Yeah, so we're so we're a data heavy company. So when I say data, so data warehousing is probably the single biggest tech expense line for sure as a company that we have um uh we we run essentially almost all of our data processing on snowflake right now um an amazon version of snowflake so we're an aws cloud customer but uh really snowflake is the big boy that eats up most of the money um and on top of snowflake we run a couple different uh kind of uh applications to look at the data be it snowflake and sql directly. Um, we have a Jupyter Hub instance uh, where some of our data science team can really kind of grind in with Python connected directly in in a hosted environment. And also uh, we use a, a dashboarding tool. Uh, most of it's internal dashboarding. We are dabbling with potentially releasing some of the 
dashboards we have externally, but we use a tool called Sigma Computing, um, which is actually pretty clever, pretty nice. Um, it's, it lives right on top of Snowflake and it's a SaaS web-based application and it's, it makes it really easy to create kind of data visuals on top of that system. That's really cool. I don't know if we've heard of Jupyter Hub. Or I don't remember hearing of Jupyter Hub before. Nope. It's a new one for us. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah no problem. <laughs> and um, Jonathan, just real quick. So if, if you could go back when you first came into working in the data industry, mm -hmm. what is the number one piece of advice you would give yourself? <laughs> that's a good, that's a really good question. Um, Let's see. Uh, I, I definitely would say um, one piece of advice I would definitely give myself before I even jumped into transaction data is when it, the mo one of the most important things when looking and analyzing data is have an open mind. I think the example of knowing that nothing was wrong with the data and there was a spike in February, March because of tax refunds. That's one of those things. If you have preconceived notions or come into um, a, an analyst or an analysis study with your own bias or your own opinion, um, you can really spin your wheels and spend way too much time uh, misunderstanding your own data or data in general. So I think having an open mind when looking at data is just paramount to being an unbiased analytical person. Um, so I think that would definitely be one of the things that probably hindered my youth, let's just say, where I think, you know, it, as youthful tech entrepreneurs, we're all pretty arrogant um, and you think you know a lot. But when you actually start looking at the data in the world, you realize you know nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that would definitely be one of the things is the humility of knowing that you know very little um, early on in your career is very valuable. Um, and then I'd say the other thing. I, I think I am a product of and, but I'd say probably I'd still give this advice to myself if I were able to speak to myself is um, don't be intimidated by, uh, by, because you have to learn. Um, and that was a really inarticulate way of saying, I came into this career from an accounting background with no coding skills. Um, I definitely can write some code now and query data uh, pretty proficiently. And those all learned on the job skills, but it is something that people can learn and pick up and being intimidated um, and being afraid to try is probably 80% of the battle. Once you just start typing and copying and pasting things, it really just snowballs and it's not that hard. And if you are just curious enough to try, um, you can build a wealth of technical skills, even if it's not in your background. And the reason I say that is in tech, and I'm sure, uh, David, you can attest this, is having some level of understanding of the technology while also being on the business side is so much more helpful than being a specialist on one or the other. I think half of my early career was translating between a CTO and a CEO because they're speaking different languages. And having the ability oh. to conjoin the two skill sets, even if I'm not the best programmer in the world, that understanding is so valuable in technology companies. That's a great point. That's a, that's, that's like been my role, my whole, you know, <laughs> my whole career. You know, I, I had a, I started out with a technical background in, in, uh -huh. in college. Um, but, you know, literally right out of college started my first company and, uh, 
know, over the years, I've become that liaison. You know, I, I don't mm -hmm. code anymore. I would, you know, wouldn't even know how to today. But at this, but I understand how it works. You know, I've done all yeah. of that, and so I'm. I find myself I'm all, often that go between between sales and engineering mm -hmm. because I understand the business and the sales side of it, um, and I understand the technical side and what can and cannot be done, and you know what it takes to do certain totally. things. So, uh, so I often find myself sort of the one that's in between, you know, mm -hmm. doing the translation from sales to engineering so that the out, the outcome is, is what the client needs. Yeah. I think, I mean, let's be honest, Dave, at the end of the day, when, when a client asks for something crazy, being able to explain that in a nice articulate way and protecting your engineers from it is <laughs> a super important skill. <laughs> yeah. Protect your engineers from it. That's a good way yeah. to put it. <laughs> and I really like engineering team. <laughs> I really liked what you said earlier too about you know the more you know, the more you learn. You don't know, and, and that's really great advice. And you know, kind of going off of all of that, are there any other lessons you've learned along the way from you know past jobs or this current role that you think everyone should know? Um, I, I'd say I think also something that's always served me well. Um, from an advice perspective. And also just I've learned from my mentors is be helpful. Um, at the end of the day, all of us have companies and yes, we have competitors and yes, we have, uh, we're fighting for different accounts here and there. And most of us are in niches and in industry, especially in tech that are relatively small. Um, but at the end of the day, there's no, nothing's life or death. And I always find if I can't serve a customer and sometimes my competitor can, um, I'm more than happy to recommend or explain to them something that uh, they took the time to take a call with me. I'm on the phone or I'm on a Zoom. I think it's always important to be helpful and be someone that after they leave a conversation, whether they became a customer or not, or whether my company could serve their needs or not, they got something out of the call. Um, I always found that that was good advice that I learned on the job. When I say learned, I've watched my mentors do that. And it has always paid dividends, I'd say, every time. Yeah, that's also really great advice. That's awesome. <clears throat> Definitely. Awesome. Well, well, I think that's a good note for us to, you know, we're running out of time. So it's a good note to end on. Be helpful. Um, and, and to your other earlier point, be humble, right? So. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> that was a much more succinct way to explain <laughs> what I just said. <laughs> Well, well Jonathan, this is great. We appreciate you joining us today. Um, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the uh, time, guys. It was really fun. I just cut off Jesse's shoes. Oh, gonna... that's okay. I was just going to give Jonathan a moment to share how listeners can find you if they want to reach out. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So um, you there, there, unfortunately, there are a lot of Jonathan Chins. Um, my LinkedIn poster was on the original uh, intro vid on the uh podcast my hair is shorter now but uh i'm pretty active on linkedin that's probably an easy way to find me or on our website factius.com uh you can find kind of my other contact info there awesome well thank you for sharing that and thank you so much for our listeners and audience members we hope you'll check out bdex's omni iq simply go to bdex.com and click the try for free button or if you're watching on the video you can just scan this QR code that's in front of my face and that will take you to it. You can simply just upload a CSV of your first party customer data 
and get gender, birth year, household income analytics, all free of charge. Um, no credit card required. Of course, if you like what you see, and most people do, you'll want to upgrade to do more with your data and you can create an expanded audience, learn more about it. Um, and we'd love to help you. So also listeners, we'd love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Please reach us at info at and share your qualitative data with us so we can make this better for you. And thank you all for being here. And thank you again, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.